Brief content warning before we get started. This episode does have non-graphic mentions of sexual assault. It was such a turning point for me to think like, oh, I finally got to the place where I can be happy for someone and not think that it negatively impacts my career or my chances or my, you know, it doesn't say anything negative about me because someone else has achieved their dream. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Jamie Beth Cohen is a writer, speaker, and storyteller who lives in Pennsylvania. Her words have appeared in the Washington Post, HuffPost, Salon, Teen Vogue, and several other outlets. She is the author of Wasted Pretty and Liminal Summer. When not working, writing, or spending time with her family, she mentors an incarcerated writer and novice storytellers. So please welcome Jamie to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So today we're going to be talking about your journey to publication, and we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Sure. So in second grade, my parents bought me a strawberry shortcake board game. And after everyone in the family was sick of playing it with me, I played it by myself. I love and strawberry shortcake. So. <laughs> she is part of my origin story. I have one older brother and two parents. That's our whole family. And they really weren't as interested in strawberry shortcake as I was. So I would play the game myself. And because I didn't want to ever play it the same way twice, I started writing down what was happening. And that became my very first piece of writing, which was a play called Mm. Strawberry Seasons. There were four acts, winter, fall, spring, summer. (laughs) And it was a play because I didn't yet understand how commas and quotation marks worked, but I could do colons. So it was completely dialogue and it was all about strawberry shortcake and I still have a copy of it. So second grade is when I got interested in writing and I always wrote. So I mean, I think I was first published in high school. I I had a couple poems published in rather reputable literary journals, although at this point I do not write poetry anymore and not really sure that I ever really actually wrote poetry. (laughs) Poetry baffles me. So second grade, that would have been 1982 for me. And I probably published a poem for the first time around 1990. But then I went years without publishing or even writing seriously. Then I had kids and mommy blogging was a thing right around then. So I guested on a couple parenting blogs. I had actually blogged a little bit. My brother had a really well-read political blog in the very early 2000s, and I wrote a humor column for him about my escapades in public restrooms. It was called Toilet Tuesdays. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Uh, And then my novel came out in 2019. So it was a really long journey, but I was sort of always writing, though not always focused on publication in that time. That's a perfect segue into the next question. Can you tell me about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published book author? 
Sure. I mean, I would definitely say that was 1982 when I was in second grade. (laughs) (laughs) My father was really into Robert Frost's poetry. And I really imagined being like the only other writer since Robert Frost to make a living just publishing. Like that was, you know, the dream. Obviously, (laughs) that's a very silly dream these days. So I would say that I know that in 2008, I wrote a short story, but I didn't know a lot about literary journals or where a short story might be published. You know, I had published in high school in a couple literary journals, but they were poetry focused. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't write a lot of poetry. And so I wrote this short story in 2008. I sort of put it away. I had my first child. Things got, you know, nutty as they do. And then uh, in January of 2011, I picked up that short story and thought, oh, this might actually be a novel. And so I did expand that short story into the novel. So I guess you can say in January 2011, I really dove in to try to do something long form with an eye towards publishing it. But I I knew almost nothing about what that would look like. All right. And how did you learn more about the publishing industry? Like how it works, how to query all those different things? You know, this, I might be retconning my own life, but I think I'm going to say pitch wars. <laughs> I think Twitter, you know, I, I, I heard about pitch wars. And to be honest, I don't even know how I did, which leads me to believe that I must have learned something prior to that somewhere. So I would definitely say on Facebook in writing groups. And then mm. I learned a lot through participating in pitch wars and being on Twitter. Cool. So then what happened? Can you break down for us your journey from then to signing your first book contract? Sure. So like I said, the short story happened in 2008. I started working on it as a novel in January of 2011. I think I applied to Pitch Wars in both 15 and 17. Mm -hmm. And I did not get in either time. But I made, you know, through all of the things surrounding Pitch Wars, finding critique partners and participating in Twitter chats and participating in the the Pitch Wars hosted chats, I got a lot of great feedback. And I got great feedback from the mentors that I applied to, not all of them, but many of them. And you know, I did get the feedback of you don't need me, you need to query, which I Mm. think being rejected from a contest hurts no matter what, but like, that's the best rejection. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like thrilled to get that rejection. I mean, I, I think there was sort of the issue of like, okay, but I've been querying this and I'm not getting representation, but it was certainly a vote of confidence in what I was working on. So I, like I said, I think that was 2015 and 2017. Part of the issue with Wasted Pretty, my debut novel, is that it wasn't really fitting in a in a known marketing niche, which Mm. is to say it was YA taking place in the 90s, which is a huge red flag for lots of agents because (laughs) A, young adults didn't exist in the 90s. B, I think it's often seen as an author who doesn't want to do their research or an author who's just working out stuff from their past. And I 
I was confident that that's where and when I wanted it set. There was a question in the beginning about should this story be written as an adult looking back on her life at 16 or should it be written in you know present tense as a 16-year-old? And once I finally figured out that, yes, it needed to be a 16-year-old, I did a lot of reading in the YA arena. And one of the things I learned as far as conventions are concerned is that a lot of the action tends to be front-loaded. So the last big revision I did after that 2017 Pitch Wars entry was to front load more of the the complications in the book. Mm -hmm. And then I went out and queried again. Again, I didn't get representation. So I queried probably 50 people after my first entry in Pitch Wars, got a couple requests, not, not a great percentage. Then I queried 50 again after my 2017 entry in Pitch Wars. Again, got a bunch of full requests, super excited, learned a lot, but ultimately didn't get representation and then was offered a contract from one of the small presses I had queried. So that is, that's how it happened. So did you start querying small presses while you were still querying agents or did you wait until after? Towards the end there, I, I did a very selective round of small press queries with either like very reputable, well-known ones or ones that had published people that I knew. So and mm. Black Rose Writing is who I ended up with. And they, in fact, had published two of my friends prior to, well, one friend and then one woman I met during the process who had also <laughs> gone with them. All right. It is time. Can you read your successful query letter for us? I am thrilled to submit Wasted Pretty for your consideration. It's a coming-of-age story about Alice Burton, who goes after what she wants, even in the face of possible heartbreak and potential danger. It's also about what happens to a girl who is thrust into the adult world for the first time, where she is changed by the male gaze. I have read you are interested in gender issues, and I feel you'd be a good representative for my work. And we follow each other on Twitter. When 16-year-old Alice finds out she can't return to McCormick Academy because her family owes the school thousands of dollars, she thinks her night can't get any worse. But then she uncovers her father's gambling addiction. The next morning, distracted by her family's crumbling finances, Alice blows her opportunity to impress college lacrosse scouts. Now senior year at McCormick and a college scholarship are both in jeopardy. Unsure of how to confront her dad, Alice turns her attention to Chris Thompson, the hot college guy who has mistaken her for someone his own age. At the same time, Carl Bean, a family friend and professional athlete, has taken a creepy interest in her. Losing 20 pounds and growing four inches in one year has attracted attention Alice thought would be fun, but it comes with consequences she's struggling to manage. When Carl offers to pay for senior year, Alice has a choice, expose his inappropriate advances and transfer to the public school where they don't play lacrosse, or keep her mouth shut, return as co-captain at the prestigious McCormick lacrosse team, and risk getting caught in a dark hallway with Carl again. Chris has strong opinions about Carl Bean, but Alice is determined to handle things her way as long as she can hold on to Chris at the same time. Wasted Pretty, complete at 67,000 words, follows Alice from suburban keg parties to dark college bars 
as she attempts to secure her tuition money while protecting her body, her future, and her heart. Set in the early 1990s, before paparazzi regularly exposed celebrity scandals, it will appeal to fans of Rainbow Rowell and Blake Nelson. I have over a decade of experience in private school admissions and financial aid. This book is based on situations I experienced as a teen and those I encounter in my work with students and their families. My nonfiction has appeared in teenvogue.com, The Washington Post, Salon, and other outlets, and I have a piece of flash fiction forthcoming at Crack the Spine Literary Journal. I'm active in my local live storytelling community, and I co-founded Right Now Lancaster, a monthly meetup for writers of our all genres. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so how's your experience been since sending your contract? Especially were there any surprises along the way? And I'd love to hear especially about your experience in working with the small press. Sure. So there are definitely pros and cons. I would say the timeline that my small press uses is so compressed that many of my friends who were published by bigger houses were shocked. I mean, it was, I signed in August of eight and the book came out in April of 19. I mean, just Mm. unbelievably compressed. Mm -hmm. So what that doesn't leave a lot of time for, which I didn't know until after the fact, was, you know, to get on a lot of lists, to get arcs into the right hands at the right times. I mean, it was, it was unbelievably compressed. And, and also it was a situation where I would turn in a draft, I would hear back from them. And then I would have 14 days from when I heard back from them to get them the next draft. And I wouldn't know when those 14 days would be. So I would have a vague idea that like I would hear back in a month or I would hear back in six weeks. But if they got me the draft earlier than that, that's when the 14 days started. So I have a full-time job and two kids. So Mm -hmm. taking off, like scheduling time away from work to focus on edits was really challenging. And I I think, I don't know, again, that was 2018. I don't know how much of their process has changed. The book Mm -hmm. that I submitted, my second book to them was in much better shape by the time they got it. So the quick turnaround didn't really impact me as much. So if it was, if it was there, I don't remember it being so, so daunting. So that was definitely surprising and something to look out for if you're working with smaller presses, your friends that have had experiences with bigger presses might not be analogous. So that's number one. Mm. Number two, I loved the control I have. My husband is a graphic designer. So we designed my cover. I would Mm. say they professionalized it, but we would, the concept was ours. The typeface was ours. They were able to do some things that made it look, in my opinion, a little bit more professional, but it was all up to me. And I, I loved that. They didn't, you know, change my title. Like all of that control stayed with me. So that I loved. Other things about working with a small press is, you know, the budget for marketing with this particular small press really wasn't there the way it Mm -hmm. is with some larger houses. Now, I have a ton of friends who 
have published with larger houses and still put their own money into marketing. So to me, that wasn't a super big deal. And I didn't have to put a ton of money into marketing, but I did put some, like I got my own swag, you know, I got my own bookmarks. I got my own business cards. I did a couple spots on podcasts that I had listened to. And I did that out of my own pocket and I probably would have anyway. So, you know, I, that was not a huge deal breaker for me, but I think it is something to to be aware of. They also just didn't have the kind of connections that a lot of bigger presses did. Now, I know plenty of small presses that do. So this is particular to my press and I, I love small presses. I think they all come with their own pros and cons. And the other surprising thing is like life just kept happening. You know, it wasn't <laughs> that dream of Robert Frost writing in a cabin, you know, by myself and, you know, just going to fancy parties in New York, right? Like that's that's not at all what it looked like. I still had my full-time job. I still had my kids. Like, you know, soccer practice still had to happen. And I had known that was going to be the case, but I definitely had friends who encouraged me to make make the time special however I could, right? I wasn't going to go off for four weeks into the, you know, the New Hampshire countryside and write poetry in a cabin. Like that was, <laughs> that was never going to be the way I was going to be able to spend my time. However, you know, I did, we threw a party. I mean, I, so I live in a small town in Pennsylvania and we threw a release party here that was so much fun. And then I had lived in New York City for 10 years. So we did have, you know, drinks with friends and I got to sign books in at a bar in New York City. And then I'm from Pittsburgh and the book takes place in Pittsburgh. So we did have a party there as well. And again, that was all on my own dime, but it was also like, I'm a party person. So that was important to me and that made it special and fun. Thanks for sharing all that. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. It's just classifications that we like to put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I wish I were a plotter, but I am a pantser. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? I regularly throw out 40,000 words at a time. So I oh. think that makes me an overwriter and yeah. also is why I wish I were a plotter and not a pantser. <laughs> Do you tend to write better in the morning or at night? So I need a little time for this one because again, full-time job, two kids, lots of soccer practice. If I had my druthers, I would spend a full day <laughs> doing almost nothing and write for two hours whenever it struck me. But I don't have that. I don't have that kind of life. So I write whenever I can. When you're working on a new project, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? So I typically start with a conflict, but it's typically a very small conflict with no stakes. Mm. <laughs> so that's the problem. I would say maybe it's not a conflict as much as a situation. <laughs> Got it. Do you prefer coffee or tea? So tea is dirty water. And I've been saying that long before Ted Lasso <laughs> said it. In fact, it's in my first book. The character does not like tea because it is dirty water. Oh my gosh, we're going to have some people who are mad about that, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them to read my book and then talk to me about it. <laughs> and also I'm decaf only. And I say that, oh. that I drink decaf for my health and everyone's health around me. <laughs> no one needs me on caffeine. When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? So I write a lot about music. And so I tend to have like time specific, period specific music playing with mm -hmm. lyrics, which I know freaks a lot of people out. 
When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? I would love to say I'm a get it down kind of person, but those 40,000 words that I frequently throw out is me trying to get it right and, and <laughs> not. So I think the fact that I throw them out is a get it right. What tools or software do you use to draft? So I I draft in Google Docs and I don't, it's not because I prefer it. It's because when I started writing, I was both at an office and my home and it mm -hmm. was just to be able to have the Google Doc open was really helpful. I mean, I think Word is far superior as far as what it can do. And I think once I get to the editing phase, I'm often downloading into Word. Yeah, I've switched back to Google Docs for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, now I work at home. So now I, mm -hmm. my day job is now completely remote. So now I, but I'm, <laughs> I'm used to having it in Google Docs also for the, for the backup capability. Honestly, and everyone's going to be mad at me for this. I really like it all. I mean, like writing is the <laughs> thing I would be doing even if I weren't getting published. Like it is like my hobby along with other things. So like Anytime I'm writing or revising or editing, I'm happy. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Always sequential order. Oh, <laughs> wait, wait. Oh, no. With, wait, with fiction, always sequential oh, okay. order. Yeah. I am yeah. working on a memoir right now and I'm just writing whatever comes to me. Mm -hmm. I, have, I literally have no idea what order it's going to appear in. Final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? 100% extrovert. <laughs> yes. I actually get very upset when people say, oh, writers are introverts. I'm like, not my friends. So, <laughs> so the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. And we're going to get into that second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey? And were they realized? Or did you overcome them? Or how did that shake out? Yeah, so I think the biggest issue for me was that I wasn't going to get published. I mean, I really just thought, like I said, I'd be writing no matter what. It's how I process what's happening around me. But I also really thought the story could help people. And so I just was petrified that it wasn't going to make it out there. And this is especially true because it is, it was, it is my first novel. I mean, I, to be fair, I think I wrote a novel length thing in high school, but I don't know where that is. And I don't want to know where that is. So this, this piece that meant so much to me and hearing so many people say, oh, you know, my first published novel was actually my ninth drafted novel, or, mm -hmm. you know, my, my first novel was, you know, my novel got me my agent, but that one didn't sell. And I, I just, that was petrifying to me. I also have a friend who she's an acquisition editor for a big five, but doesn't work in the same, same genre that I work in. She was very helpful along the way. And she said to me after reading the first draft that I felt comfortable sharing with anyone of Wasted Pretty was she always feels bad for first novels because people feel compelled to throw everything in and the kitchen sink. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, this is my first novel. The best piece of feedback she gave me was the first draft had a part one where the girl is in high school and part two where the girl is in college. And she said, there's not enough transformation to warrant that, that time lapse. So you need to get rid of one of these and expand the one you don't get rid of. And that really helped to cut out that kitchen sink stuff mm -hmm. because it really helped me to focus on that high school experience. But even once I did that, I was still petrified it wasn't going 
to come out. I would say the other qualm, which is, you know, super complicated to talk about, and I want to be really clear about it, imposter syndrome that is magnified when you don't get an agent or a big five contract is real. And Mm. I have people telling me all the time, like, no, you're a traditionally published author. And like, I am by the technical definition, but like, I'm not in my mind because there wasn't an agent, there wasn't a big five, there wasn't a book tour. You know, there was none of the stuff that I expected when I was imagining what this would look like. Now that said, I'm still thrilled that the book is out there. I'm thrilled with the opportunities that is opened for me. But when I got the offer, one of my mentors said, if I were you, I wouldn't take it. Mm. She said, this is gonna, this is gonna pigeonhole you into a very specific kind of career that may not be the kind of career you wanted. And it certainly wasn't the career I dreamed of. And what I said to her was, if I was 24, I probably would turn this offer down. But I am 44 with a job that pays my bills and a family to support, and I might not be Danielle Steele, right? And that that's okay, because at 44, I think I've made peace with that. I just really want this book out there. And to a certain extent, what I think she was absolutely right in what she said, although I think that... With my memoir, I have a different vision for how that's going to hopefully shake out. And I still think I might have somewhat of the credibility that I was hoping a book contract would give me that I think going with the press that I went with didn't necessarily give me. I hope Mm. that makes sense. Yeah, I can definitely say that imposter syndrome when you're with a small press is real, especially in my case, I don't know, I don't think they do this anymore, but my debut group wouldn't let me in because of my publisher. My debut group wouldn't let me in because of my publisher. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Which is a huge, it's a huge loss. I mean, yeah, I felt it, it I took it as a huge loss and I felt it a, as a huge loss. And what I can say is the people that I've met that are sort of with more literary small presses have been amazing and have been welcoming mm. and there's been none of that. And they are I, my biggest champions at this point. Yeah. I think I especially, I still feel it every time someone mentions how big of an influence their debut group was on them on this podcast. So, yeah. yeah. And I also, and again, I mean, I will not name names, but I do <laughs> have a friend who read my first book with sort of a like, I'm her friend, I have to read it attitude Mm. and came back to me and said, this is better than my friends who are on the New York Times bestsellers. (laughs) And I was like, thank you. Like, listen, it's like, it's not a competition. And like, do I hold on to that little piece of like, that felt really good to hear her say it, but she admitted to me that she was shocked. And we're yeah. very good friends. I'm not offended by any of this. I'm my skin is so thick at this point. <laughs> but she told me, like, I read this as like I have to read this, and I was blown away. And mm. she does have friends on the New York Times bestseller, and I support that and I support them, and that's wonderful. It just wasn't I, I think. I mean, maybe your listeners know this already, but I think for me, it was shocking to learn that 
It's not a meritocracy. And it's not necessarily who you know, although that is part of it. But there's so much luck. There's so much mm-hmm. luck involved in the journey that, yes, you have to have the chops. Yes, I hope your book is fabulous. I'm sure it is. And it still might not get to where you want it to get to. And that part you can't control. Yeah. All right. We're going to lighten it up a little bit. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? So... If it were up to me, I'd have a ton of quirks. <laughs> it would be, I would be very precious about it. But it's not up to me. It's up to my timeline. I mean, one of the things I'll say, and again, I've had people throw things across the table at me, is that I've never had writer's block. And that is mm. not because I am a font of words. It is because my time to write is so limited that I always have more to say than I'm able to get into a writing session. Patton Oswald in the documentary that was made about his wife's book, she was a true crime writer who passed away, said that it took him a while to understand that she needed eight hours of time alone to write for maybe two. And and that is me. Like if mm. it, that would be me if I were allowed <laughs> that time. Like that is my preference. And so I highly recommend to anyone and everyone, if they can spend time at the Highlights Retreat Center in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, to do it. They provide for you three meals a day, unlimited snacks, unlimited coffee and tea, wine and cheese at like cocktail hour, if you like those things. Mm. They will conform to any diet you tell them. I can't even explain to you what it's like to say to someone, well... I'm dairy-free, but I also think beans are gross because often when you say dairy-free, you get like beans and rice and they, their meals are phenomenal and you get a cabin in the woods. And so every chance I get, which again is not frequently, I will go to the Highlights Retreat Center. And in the beginning, I tried to just sit at the desk and write for eight hours Mm -hmm. And I don't do that anymore. I specifically carve out two hour chunks and then I program other things in. So if it's like breakfast, then I write for two hours, then I go for a hike, then it's lunch, then I write for two hours, then I go for another hike before it's cocktail hour. And knowing that being a mom with two kids and a full-time job to be away from my family, I feel a huge responsibility that I should be writing all the time. And it took me a while to learn that actually I write best in two-hour chunks. And if I try to press beyond that, like unless I'm in serious flow, it's not wise. And so that ritual, that sort of having eight hours and only committed to writing for two is super important to me. Also, the flip side of that is I love to write in public spaces. So going into the you know woods for three days when I can is amazing, <laughs> but that really only happens twice a year at most, maybe only once a year. So I have been known to go to hotel lobbies. I think coffee shops or COVID has really crimped my style because mm-hmm. there's a pizza place that's a bar in my in my town that I would go to after work and write there. And then I would run into friends and I would chat with them for 45 minutes and then I would write for another two hours. Like <laughs> I, I like being in public spaces. I do not get distracted easily by background noise. There are 
videos on YouTube that are actually cafe background noise. I don't mm-hmm. know if people know I this. <laughs> I didn't know that for a while. So when I used to live in Brooklyn, I lived on the third floor of a building where the first floor was an Italian restaurant that had a patio. And I would literally open up my windows just to hear the clinking of the silverware against, you know, <laughs> they would play like Italian cafe music. And so anytime I can recreate that feeling, I do. So I guess that's, yeah, it's the quirk would be that I both love to be in the woods for eight hours at a time and only write for two hours. And I also like to be in a bar writing. <laughs> All right. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, whatever that may have been for you, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? My first novel is about the aftermath of a sexual assault. And what kept me going was knowing that people need to read about that and that there are people who need to feel less alone and there are people who need to know that you can come back from that. I just, my favorite book groups to do are with parents and teens. So last week I had an event. So April is sexual assault awareness month. So during the month of April, I end up doing a lot of events because it's easy for people to program me then. And I met with the teens on a Sunday night and I met with the moms on a Monday night. Mm -hmm. And one of the things the moms really wanted to know was, you know, how can we protect our kids? And I have a whole list of tips and, you know, what are best practices and where are the resources. But the thing that I told the most and where I saw the biggest sigh of relief is, honestly, the stats will will sort of speak to the fact that you can't necessarily protect your kids, but Mm -hmm. nothing is insurmountable. And so the ability for them to see me as an adult with two books in the world and a full-time job and two kids and blah, 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 and a happy marriage is that I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And it was not insurmountable. It was yucky. It was bad. You know, you can insert any word there. It was traumatic. It was horrible, but it was not insurmountable. And so I wanted this book out there to make that case in fiction, because I think people can often hear that kind of thing more easily in fiction than they Mm. can in nonfiction or in person. So that's what kept me going. Why did I stick with it? I mean, I think for the same reason. The story Mm -hmm. needed to be told as far as I was concerned. All right. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you felt like you made along the way to your journey to publication? that you might want to share with listeners. So hopefully they don't make the same ones. (laughs) So I'm actually a really big believer in there aren't a lot of mistakes. I, I think one of the things, and when I talk to new writers or writers who are considering things, it took me a while to learn that there are, when you're presented with two options or saying yes or no to something, there's often not a right and a wrong answer or a Mm -hmm. right and a wrong option. So any mistakes I made took me down one path rather than another path. And then I just made the best of what I had in that new path. So I don't know so much that I can help people avoid mistakes as much as I can ask them to reframe what they might consider a mistake and, and think about what that decision, whatever it was, led you to the path that you're currently on and how do you make the best out of that path? I mean, like I said, I think my mentor would tell you that signing the book contract that I signed was a mistake. And I think, you know, I that there are valid there are valid points to that. And yet, 
I've done so much since I signed that contract that I'm thrilled that I got to do that it's hard for me to view it as a mistake. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? Yeah, that we're not in competition with each other, that the writers Mm -hmm. that you meet or know or learn from or get to hear speak, my family will laugh at this. People Mm -hmm. think I'm incredibly competitive because of how I present, but actually I'm just competitive with myself. Like I always want to be doing the best right thing. And and I... (laughs) I'm, I'm actually not competitive with other people. I think probably when I was younger, I was. But recently, someone from my first post-college writing group had a poem in The New Yorker. And mm. I was so excited for her. And then I was like checking my body for where the jealousy was because I assumed <laughs> like you get something published in The New Yorker, like that's pretty cool. And I, I didn't. I didn't find the jealousy. And it was such a turning point for me to think like, oh, I finally got to the place where I can be happy for someone and not think that it negatively impacts my career or my chances or my, you know, it doesn't say anything negative about me because someone else has achieved their dream. It took a really long time to learn that, but that has made a huge difference in my mindset. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people or organizations who helped you along the way and how? Yeah, so Pitch Wars, definitely. I mean, honestly, all of the people that I met through Pitch Wars and on Twitter, and again, having never been selected, I mean, and I know Pitch Wars is No longer, sadly, but I really would say that people should take part in contests, not necessarily to quote unquote win, but to Mm -hmm. actually put themselves out there and to meet people. So definitely pitch wars. My husband is my first read. He teaches freshman writing at a college. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So he does not always love what I write, but he always (laughs) has good. Oh, he really doesn't. I mean, but he he always has good feedback. So that's Mm -hmm. amazing. There's a writer named Michelle Lombardo, who is local to me. And we started a writing group together and have since added a third member to our leadership team. And that's Suzette Mullen, who is a memoir writer and book coach. And those women have carried me when I could not carry myself. And I've mentioned that I've had mentors along the way, and all of those came from contests as well. So I think I would thank my kids, but really they do complain a lot about the time I spend writing it with them. <laughs> so <laughs> they're like unwilling participants in my acknowledgement journey. <laughs> Since we already heard about Waste of Pretty from your query letter, can you tell us about your latest book, Liminal Summer? Sure. So Liminal Summer is a sequel to Wasted Pretty. It is unclear whether it will be the second in a series of three or not. People are clamoring for a third book. I have not written a third book, so we'll see. But Liminal Summer takes place five years after Wasted Pretty. So in Wasted Pretty, Alice is going into her senior year of high school. And in Liminal Summer, she has just graduated from college. And 
a lot of the themes that were explored in Wasted Pretty come back in Liminal Summer. Chris Thompson comes back to her life. Her dad is still thwarting things left and right. And she's really, you know, for all the growing she does through Wasted Pretty, getting out of college and having to make some real important decisions with real life consequences forces her to do a lot more growing. Mm. All right, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast. I love talking (laughs) to you. And I'm really happy for the things that I've also learned from you. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Jamie's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.